into Luke chapter 5 here this morning. Luke 5, please. Continuing our study here through the book of Luke. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 17 through 32. 17 through 32 here in Luke chapter 5. Now, we're not going to actually start in verse 32. We're going to start in verses 31 and 32 because those are the key passages of what we're going to talk about this morning. Listen to the words of Christ here in verses 31 and 32. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the focus of what we're going to talk about today. Is Christ coming to die for our sins. Now, I know we all know that. Jesus died for our sins. We got that ingrained into our head. From an early age, we know that. If you go up and ask my two-year-old, what did Jesus do for you? He'll just repeat, died for my sins. I don't know if he understands it. If he understands it, he's not living it. But I'll tell you right now, he knows it. Now, Jesus came to die for our sins. That's what he did. Now, the problem is we have a tendency to want Jesus to come and do other things. We wanted him to come right all the wrongs of this world. But that will happen, but that will happen in eternity. We want him to come heal every single broken heart that we have and we'll never feel pain or suffering again. That will happen, but that will happen in heaven. Well, we want him to come fix all the social ills of every problem that we're facing as a nation. Well, that happens when he reigns during the millennial reign. So during eternity, during heaven, during the millennial reign, yes, Christ fixes all those things. But the purpose that he came here in the New Testament is he came to die for our sins. And since he came to die for our sins, it makes our purpose very clear. Our purpose then is to go tell people that he died for our sins. That's his purpose. That's our purpose. Let's see this now. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 5 says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. Now when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to a man, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is an amazing story. We've heard this story numerous times. If you grew up in church, you heard this story through uh, Sunday school. I remember seeing the pictures of the guys up on the roof, lowering the guy down through the ropes of the, through the uh, roof there. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. First off, there's crowds. Why are there crowds? The crowds are there because of verse 17, because Jesus is teaching. I won't get on my soapbox about this, but to me it just shows the primary purpose of teaching once again. Teaching is what edifies us and encourages us. Teaching is what takes us deeper in our walk in relationship with the Lord. You know where I'm going to go with this. It is vitally important to your walk in relationship with the Lord to have that time in the Word. When you're in the Word, it grows you spiritually in the Lord. When you see Jesus, His primary mode, of, if you will, of proclaiming the gospel while on this earth, was through teaching. And obviously he must have been a good teacher because the house is completely packed. You ever heard that lesson, that good teaching that you just wanted to keep listening to? I was doing a hospital visit not too long ago, and I was in a section of town I'm not normally in, and I got a radio station I normally don't get, and there's this great teaching on it. And as I'm driving out of town, I'm starting to lose the radio station. And the teaching's so good, you have this moment of, I just want to pull over and hear the end of it because it was so good. That's just what the Lord does, and that's the neat thing about it. I remember when I first got saved... One of the verses that Pastor Krager taught on was in the book of Isaiah. One of the things that Jesus is going to do during the millennial reign is he's going to teach. Now, isn't that just mind-blowing to think that you get to go to the temple to hear Christ teach about himself? So we can sit here and say, okay, you know, I, I heard Pastor James teach one time on Luke 5, 17. Now, Jesus, can you tell me what it really is about? Because he was there. That's the beauty of this. And so this idea of teaching is such a vital part of it, and the crowds were there to hear that. Now, the place is packed. 
So these four friends get together, and they care so deeply about their paralytic friend that they want to get him to Jesus. So they get him, want to get him to Jesus, and so they go to the door. They can't get in through the door. They go to the window, can't get in through the window. So let's go through the roof. New Testament houses, they had this kind of patch-type roof, if you will, where you could take out tiles and patches, and then you can lower somebody through. And they literally took the roof apart to lower him down in there. Can you imagine that Jesus is just teaching? The house is completely crowded. All of a sudden, you dirt and dust falls down. There's a whole sunlight comes through. And here's this body being lowered right over type of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. I heard a pastor, and I'm going to steal this point. He said, do you have an unsafe friend? He goes, do you care enough about your unsafe friend to be like these friends, to take your unsafe friend to Jesus? See, if you go look at the other gospel accounts, there was four friends. And these four friends went and took this person to Christ. And this pastor made the point of, he goes, go get a couple friends. Find that collective friend you have that's not saved, not walking with the Lord. He goes, pray for him together. Take your friend to Jesus. And we've done that before out here in the past. We'll have a collective person that maybe two, three, four of us know. And then the person's not really walking with the Lord. We'll get together and say, let's just pray for our friend. Just like they took their friend to Jesus, let's take this friend to Christ in prayer. What great friends. They wanted to bring him right to the Lord, and that's exactly what they did. And that's our first point here today. They wanted to take him to the Lord. They knew they had to get this man to Jesus. They knew that. Now, if you go back to John 1, when Philip got saved, Philip was so amazed at meeting Jesus, what's the first thing Philip did? He had to go get Nathaniel and say, you've got to come meet Jesus. See, this is supposed to be the outcome of a changed life with Christ. Christ has done something amazing in your life, so you want to go tell other people about Christ. See, Jesus came to die for our sins, and so therefore it's our responsibility now to spread the gospel around. So we are so touched by what Christ did for us personally, we now want to go tell other people about what Christ has done for us. These four friends, I don't know where they stood with the Lord. Obviously they knew something about Jesus. we got to get our paralyzed friend to him. We have to. They were willing to take a roof down to do it. Jump ahead if you go to verse 27. We're going to come back, but let's just build on this point. Verse 27, after these things, he, meaning Jesus, went over and saw a tax collector named Levi, who's also named Matthew, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Look what happens here with Levi or Matthew when he comes and meets Jesus. First thing he wants to do, according to verse 29, is what? Give a great feast at his house, invite over all his unsafe friends. See, Matthew was so touched by what Jesus did in his life, he wanted to go get other people and say, you need to meet this guy. That's what Christ does. He does amazing things in your life, so therefore now you want to go tell other people about what he's done. Now some of you may be sitting there thinking, mm, he hasn't done anything amazing in my life. He died on the cross for your sins. Well, I know that. Okay, it doesn't get much better than that. See, that's the problem. Jesus didn't heal my aunt, my uncle. Jesus didn't give me that six-figure job. He didn't give me that girl I wanted. He didn't give me that guy I wanted. He didn't give me anything I wanted. He died for you. I know he died for me, but he didn't give me what I wanted. You sound like a spoiled two-year-old. He died for our sins. That is amazing and wonderful, which brings you salvation and eternity. And to be perfectly blunt, and I don't mean to be mean, if that's not good enough for you, then you're really missing out what Christ did. He saved us from an eternity of hell. So therefore, now I want to go tell other people about what he's done for me. See, these four friends knew Jesus could do something. Let's get our friend there. Matthew said, this guy has done something for me. I want to invite all my friends to come hear about him. And look how simple it is. Look at Luke 5, 27. Jesus says, follow me. Matthew, in verse 28, follows him. Verse 29, I want to tell other people about him. How simple and straightforward is that? 
Jesus says follow, so I follow, and then I want to tell other people about it. We have a tendency to take Christianity and make it really complex. This is how simple it is. Jesus loves you. He says, follow me. Now, note he just says, follow me. He doesn't force it. He doesn't push it. He doesn't guilt trip Levi. He just says, follow me. Levi's heart is touched by this, verse 28, so he leaves all and follows him. Now, that phrase, left all, is important, and I don't want to skip over that, but we covered that last week. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go back and get our message there from Luke 5, because we talked about leaving all to follow Christ. So he is touched by the Lord. He leaves all, and then verse 29, he's so touched by what God's done, I want to tell everybody else about that. See, when you get it that it's all about the Lord and what he's done, you finally have that fulfillment in life. This happens to me all the time. I have people contact me and they're going through a tough time. What's my purpose in life? What am I here for? I really just don't have joy. I feel really dry. You know, I just don't really feel happy. I really just don't feel fulfilled. My life's kind of pointless and meaningless. Well, the reason you were created is to tell other people about Christ. If that's not your number one thing, you're going to feel an unfulfillment in life. See, the Bible makes it clear in Colossians 1, I was created by Christ for Christ. So I was created by him to do what he wants me to do. So I will only feel fulfilled when I'm doing the things he wants me to do. What has he called me to do? He's called me to tell other people about him. He makes it clear in John 15, I've appointed you to go bear fruit. I've appointed you to go tell people about me. If you're not doing what he's called you to do, there will be a lack of fulfillment. I heard a great analogy of this one time, and I'll use it. They talked about a car. The purpose of a car is to get you from point A to point B. That fulfills the purpose of the car. So I can take my car and I can drive out to the Grand Canyon and it fulfilled its purpose of getting me from my house to the Grand Canyon. Now when I get to the Grand Canyon, I can say, I want to jump the Grand Canyon now in my car. My car was not created to fulfill the purpose of jumping the Grand Canyon. So if I try to go jump the Grand Canyon in my car, guess what's going to happen? It will crash because I'm trying to use my car for a purpose it was not created for. If you have been created to tell people about Christ, if you are not doing that purpose in life, you will feel unfulfilled because you're not doing what you're called to do. Well, God created me to be happy. He created you to be saved. He created me to be blessed. He created you to be saved. The offshoot of being saved is you're blessed and you're joyful. Now, see, here's the thing in life. I've come to the conclusion I can't look for fulfillment through anything else. I love my wife. We've been married 16 years, but she does not fulfill me. My kids don't fulfill me. I love you, but you guys don't fulfill me either, okay? My only fulfillment comes from Christ. If I look to dawn to fulfill my life, I'm going to be disappointed. If I look to my boys to fulfill my life, I'm going to be disappointed. If I look towards you to fulfill my life, I'm going to be disappointed. My only fulfillment in life comes from doing what God has asked me to do and fulfilling what he's called me to do. That, that is the only purpose and joy we have. And the problem is, to be perfectly honest, we're very selfish of, Lord, well, I want what I want. Well, you can have what you want. I just read a great passage in Psalms the other day where God gave them the desires of their heart. The Bible says he also sent leanness in the heart, meaning they got everything they wanted and they still weren't fulfilled. And that's exactly what happens in the world. You can have everything the world has to offer you, and you still won't be fulfilled because the only time you will be fulfilled is when you are right with what the Christ wants you to do. And what does Christ want us to do? He wants us to do exactly what he did with Matthew. Follow, respond, and then bring other people to Christ. That's fulfillment. Now let's jump back then and talk about this a little bit because there's a problem. The problem is, why is this so difficult to do? Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 30. And their scribes and their Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You know why it's difficult to be fulfilled in life? Because there's always somebody that's just being a pain in the butt. There is. To them, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Levites, excuse me, and the scribes. 
Jesus is doing something amazing here, and what are they doing? They're complaining. In fact, that word for complaining right there in verse 30, it actually means murmuring. And murmuring is just this quiet little complaining. What I envision here is Jesus is in the house teaching, and over in the corner there's these Pharisees. They're just talking to themselves, just quiet, just complaining about everything that Jesus did and said. Same thing here with this great feast for all these sinners there, according to what Matthew did. They're just sitting over in the corner just constantly complaining. Do you know anybody like that? Just constantly murmuring and complaining. Aren't you thankful that we have a church where there's no one who murmurs and complains? Not a single one of you. No. It's one of the biggest problems facing any church is there's these people get together and they always have an opinion about stuff and they're going to get together and they're going to talk about it. Now the thing is, it's almost always negative. Because if it was positive, we wouldn't be in the corner talking about it. We'd go over and say, wow, that was amazing what you're doing and what God is doing through you. No, I think they should do it this way. I think they should do it that way. And it's just this little murmuring and complaining. And the thing is, what happens is people call me up and they say, Pastor, I want to go deeper in my walk and relationship with Christ. So I'm taking these steps to do it, but there's these people. And as I try to go deeper, they're just being negative. They're just being difficult. They're just being... Yeah, there are. It's just like the Pharisees with Jesus. Just like the Pharisees with uh, Matthew when he tried to throw the great feast. As soon as you decide to go deeper in the Lord, you're going to have somebody in your life that's just going to be murmuring about it. Maybe it's a coworker. Oh, you're going to read your Bible now during lunch? Oh, now you're not going to cuss anymore or you're going to do this? Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's your spouse. I know what that's like. No, maybe it is. We all have these moments of where we're trying to go deeper in the Lord, and there's this murmuring and complaining, and it's just that, I hate to use that word, but that negativity, if you will, that just brings us down. We have to reach a point where we have to realize that's the way it's going to be. It's just going to be. There's always going to be somebody in your life, and sometimes it is that close one, that loved one, that spouse, those kids, those friends that you never thought would. They're going to be the ones that are going to be that bringing you down, and you have to work through that. You have to realize I can't allow those people to control me because the thing I realize, anytime I want to go deeper in the Lord, there's always going to be somebody that's bothered. It just blows my mind. You know, in the 12 years I've been the pastor out here, we've had some amazing opportunities to do some amazing things in the Lord. And sometimes what happens is we have this great idea or this great vision of what God wants to do, of bringing souls into the kingdom and seeing the kingdom of God expanded. And then there's someone that murmurs and complains. And I'm thinking, we're murmuring and complaining about people getting saved? Why? See, this is what happens. We have this tendency sometimes to be negative about things. Just just check yourself. And I'm not trying to say this to pick on you. Is, is that you a little bit? This is what I notice. I, I won't usually murmur and complain with other people because I, you know, I'm too good for that. But what happens is, get me alone with Dawn? Oh, we'll just, we'll just go back and forth. Sometimes I realize she's the worst influence I have in my life is my own wife. And so what I notice sometimes is, and I've said this jokingly to couples before, it's like, you know, maybe you guys shouldn't talk because you guys kind of just murmur and complain amongst each other. Maybe you guys should just kind of like live in separate houses or something. Because what happens is we're so comfortable around our spouses sometimes we let our guard down and we start saying things we wouldn't say to literally anybody else. But it's okay, it's my wife, it's my husband. No, sometimes that negativity just kind of breeds and we got to be careful about that. Anytime Jesus wanted to do something for the kingdom, there's always these Pharisees and Sadducees hanging out in the corner, murmuring and complaining. That's difficult. That is difficult to do. What did Christ do to handle this? Verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? I love it. Just come right out and say it. What are you guys doing? What are you saying? There's this example in the Gospels, and I can't remember right where it's at right now, but they're walking down the road. Jesus is kind of leading them, and the disciples are hanging out behind, and they're hanging out behind them just complaining, arguing amongst themselves. So the Bible says that Jesus turns around and says, what are you talking about? Do you remember their response? Oh, nothing, 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 
I always know there's major problems in urban world if I ask the boys, what are you doing? And they say, nothing. That's bad. Jesus knew what they were doing. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying we have seen strange things today. Jesus comes out and says, what are you guys talking about? He knows he doesn't like it that he said your sins are forgiven. So he says in verse 23, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, it seems like a trick question, but it's not. You know what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove that. You guys could all come up here and I could just look at you and say, your sins are forgiven. Now, you may sit there and say, James, you can't do that. Only Jesus can forgive sins. You can't forgive sins. And I would say, oh, no, I can. I just forgave their sins. You can't just prove it. See, the purpose of the second miracle, rise up and walk, was to prove that he had the power to do the first miracle, which is forgive sins. The second miracle confirmed the first miracle. Now, I think that's important because Jesus saw the bigger problem was not the physical, but the spiritual. Now, put this into perspective. These four friends are carrying their friend to go meet Jesus. Now, if you've ever worked in any type of home health aid or any type of nursing or anything like that, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, there's that phrase that's thrown around of dead weight. If you've ever tried to carry somebody or move somebody, a full-grown man, that is a difficult thing to do. So these four friends get some type of bed around. They all take a corner, and we're taking Fred to go see Jesus. I don't think his name was Fred, but we're taking Fred to go see Jesus. They go to the door. They can't. Excuse me. Watch out. Pardon me. Excuse me. We need to get in to see Jesus. There's so many people we can't. They go around to the window. They can't get through the window. They put Fred down. Fred's getting heavy. What do we do? They look up. Somebody says, roof. They all sit there and look at each other and say, we can't do the roof. And then they realize, what other options do we have? They cared so much. You know what I was doing if I was Fred's friend? I'd get within one block of the house and say, there's a lot of people there, Fred. We'll catch Jesus tomorrow because there's just a lot of people. How often do we give up? So they go up on the roof. They carry this guy up the roof. Now, that's a big deal. They get on top of the roof, take apart the roof, and now they start lowering the guy in the roof. Now, you would think lowering would be the easiest part. If you've ever tried to lower anything, <laughs> it's not as simple as it seems, especially if you have four people, maybe with four ropes on each corner, and you're trying to lower a paralyzed man down through a roof. So they finally get him to Jesus. Guess what Jesus has the audacity to do in verse 20? Your sins are forgiven. They did not lower this man to get his sins forgiven. They lowered this man to be healed. How frustrating. Jesus had the audacity to save him, but we really just wanted him healed. See, that's the thing about Christ. Christ says the spiritual is always more important than the physical. Always. One of the things I love about out here at Harvest, if someone lifts up a prayer request and fill in the blank, my uncle's got cancer, he's not doing good, he may not make it. Generally, someone says, was your uncle saved? No, he's not saved. Okay, well, I'll definitely pray for the physical, but I'm praying for the spiritual first. Because what good does it do if the man is healed of cancer, still dies of physical death, and spends all of eternity in hell? We need to see the spiritual get fixed first. The spiritual is always more important than the physical. Jesus realized that, and that's why he said, your sins are forgiven. Let's take care of the spiritual first and worry about the physical later. And did the physical come? You bet it did. What an amazing miracle. This man got up. And walked. Verse 25. I always think about that. And I've seen Jesus movies before when they show these type of healings. And it's always the same. Jesus says to the man, verse 24, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go to your house. And Jesus always has this really great baritone voice. 
And he says it really in deep. And what happens is in verse 25 then is the music starts playing. And it's dramatic music. And so the music starts playing. And you see the guy try to get one leg and he's shaking. He gets the other leg and he's shaking. And he starts to stand up. And it looks like he's going to fall. And one of the friends leans over to grab him and he waves him off. And then he stands up and the music is, hits its crescendo. That's not how it happened. Verse 25 immediately rose up before them. He just got up. That's the miracle of it. He just got up. If you've ever been around anybody in the hospital where they've maybe not walked and their legs have atrophy, that is an amazing miracle. Jesus is not just healing him to get up and walk. He is almost recreating ligaments, bones, tissue. I mean, this is amazing. And he gets up just like that. I'm telling you, if I was a paralyzed man and I felt that strength back in my legs, I wouldn't do the slow dramatic. I'd just get up and start running around. And that's exactly what actually happened in the book of Acts, if I remember correctly, when Peter and John healed the one beggar the Bible says he leaped. He was so excited. So immediately, he's healed, glorifying God. Verse 26, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Verse 26, that word for strange, some of you have the word amazing. It's actually a really interesting word. That word strange is actually where we get our English word paradox. This was a paradox to them. To some people, seeing Jesus heal this man was amazing, and they glorified God. The other group of people, they didn't know what to think. It was a paradox to them. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you can remember what it was like before you got saved and after you got saved, and you started acting different, talking different, living your life differently, and you ran into some people that you used to knew. And I, I can remember when I first got saved, I went to my aunt and uncle who were walking with the Lord, and I remember them rejoicing and glorifying. Then I can remember other times going to people that I knew, and I told them about my relationship with the Lord and being saved, and they looked at it as a paradox. They didn't get it. It was a little strange to them. See, that's the thing is, the people in the house that believed in Jesus, what he could do, they see the paralyzed man healed. Amen. The people that don't really know Jesus, that was strange. See, that's the thing. When you walk with the Lord, we, we really think everybody's going to be happy for us. Well, why wouldn't they be happy? My marriage that was falling apart is now better. I was now thinking about life and ending it, and now I'm, I'm joyful in the Lord. I, I used to cuss like a sailor. Now I don't anymore. I used to spend every Friday and Saturday night in the bar as a different woman every night. I don't do that anymore. W wouldn't they be happy for me that my lifestyle has totally changed? No, it's, you're a paradox to them. They, they don't get you because now that you've been born again and saved, you're really kind of strange. And the Bible actually says, the Bible calls us a peculiar people. And what happens is some of your quote-unquote friends liked you the way you were before. And so now when you're walking differently with the Lord, now all of a sudden these people that you thought would do anything for you are now opposing you. Why? Because you now have Christ. See, that's what Christ does. Christ is the fulfillment in our life. Just go back and look at this. It goes back to our first passage we talked about here today, verses 31 and 32. Christ came and basically said, I've come for those that need the physician, for those that are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I made a comment earlier at the 830 message where I made a comment about, generally speaking, when you're feeling well, you don't usually call up your doctor just to say, hey, don't need an appointment, just want to let you know I'm doing good. Uh, usually you don't do that. When do you call your doctor? You call your doctor when you're sick. Someone came up to me after the service and said, the truth of the matter is sometimes when we're sick, we still don't call our doctor. Same thing happens spiritually. Some of us are spiritually sick, and we still don't call Dr. Jesus to help us here. But Christ did come to die for us. That's the, that's the first thing. He did not come to right all the wrongs, heal every broken heart, fix all social ills. He came to die for our sins. All those things will happen, but he came to die for our sins. Since that's what he came to do, the true fulfillment we have in life is when we go tell other people about what he did. That, that's what happens. And for you to spread the gospel, you must personally know the gospel. You must personally realize what Christ did for you. When you realize what God has done for you, now you want to go tell other people about it, just like the four friends bringing their friend to Jesus, just like Levi, Matthew there, that had the great feast. 
And who did Matthew invite? He invited sinners. Look at the Pharisees' response. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I believe it's the Gospel of Mark and his account. They keep calling these guys that Matthew invited sinners. Well, I know lots of sinners. I know I'm a sinner. It's really easy for me to have a feast and invite sinners. It's hard to find some righteous people to invite, but I can invite sinners. And I can say, I want you to come meet Christ. That's exactly what Matthew did. That's exactly what his friends did. That's exactly what Philip did. Nathaniel, you've got to come meet Jesus. That's what brings fulfillment in life. When you really are stopping and saying, Lord, I want to do what you want. And I'm just asking yourself right now not to condemn, not to pick. But if you're at a spot in life where you're feeling a little spiritually dry, or maybe you're at a spot in life where you're not really feeling fulfilled, ask yourself, when's the last time you told somebody about Christ? When's the last time you told someone, you know what? I'm going to really pray for you in that area. When's the last time you shared a scripture with somebody that was hurting? When's the last time you impacted eternity? That's when you will feel fulfilled. You will feel fulfilled when you make a difference for somebody for all of eternity. When we quit living in our sin and start saying, I want to make a difference for eternity because it's not about me anymore. It's about the Lord. When you reach that point, now you finally get it that I was created by God for God, to see the kingdom of God advance and to see souls get saved. That's what matters, and that's all that matters. Marvin Kelly, if you want to come up forward here for the final song. I'm looking forward to next week. Next week we get a chance to talk about fasting, subject we don't get a chance to talk about too often, and the importance of fasting and prayer. hope you can make it out for that. And while they're coming up here for the final song, let's have a word of prayer.